Hello you and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today we are talking about Death Becomes Her and we're talking about it with the great BJ Colangelo. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed, and I will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. Death Becomes Her is a 1992 American satirical black comedy fantasy film directed and produced by Robert Zemeckis. It was written by David Cope and Martin Donovan. It stars Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn as rivals who fight for the affections of the same man, Bruce Willis, and drink a magic potion that promises eternal youth. BJ Colangelo is a friend of the show. She has been on in the past to talk about Jingle All the Way. We launched our shows on the same week, two days apart, BJ's show, which she hosts with Harmony Colangelo, another friend of ours, another person who has been on this show. Uh, They launched their show, This Ends It Prom, really great movie podcast. You will love it if you love this show and you don't know about it already. Check it out. We're pals from being in this arena. I think actually, BJ and I were both on an early pandemic lockdown live trivia show (laughs) together (laughs) and that's how we met and i'm glad that we did and beyond podcasting bj is a writer Uh, she writes about this genre as well as uh many other of the wonderful and dark and schlocky genres (laughs) that we love so much she loves horror we love horror we love bj Thank you to everyone who came out to see us in Los Angeles at our live shows with Woody Sticks. We had so much fun. We had such a delightful time. Thanks to y'all who came out. It was a blast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, how are you doing? How is everything going in your life? What are you reading? What are you thinking about? What are you watching? Let us know on Instagram. Let us know on uh, the network formerly known as Twitter. Let us know on Blue Sky, where I'm getting better. Let us know how you're doing. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible with and by your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple podcast subscriptions. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for supporting us there. And in return, you get bonus episodes, uh, monthly bonus episodes. So thank you for your support over there. Thanks for making the show possible. And in return, you get those bonus episodes. Hey, I don't know if you were using our Discord when uh, we launched that, but we launched it and had a whole bunch of people over there, and then I became (laughs) terrible at actually tending to it, but a lot of you are still there. Thank you so much. I recently peeked back in, and uh, I'm looking forward to engaging that further. So we are on Discord. You may have been there the entire time. I have been an absentee uh, Discordian, I guess, (laughs) but... I'm over there again, hopefully trying to be better about it than I was the last time around. And yeah, I think that's it before we dive into this week's episode, which again is about Death Becomes Her. Again, we're talking about it with BJ Colangelo. Thank you so much for being here. Let's drink the potion. Hello, Sarah Marshall. I see me, I see me. Hello, Alex Steed and BK. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Hello, this is a movie that starts off strong, Alex Steed. Have you seen any movies lately that start off strong? I watching this scene, I was like, are we not supposed to like this? Because I love this. Like everyone's like, this is a bad performance. I have been wondering that since I was 10 years old. <laughs> So we're we're watching a movie. I'm so excited. And BJ will give us some background uh, here on BJ's relationship with this movie, too. But it's the same exact relationship as ours and our friend Eve's. We're watching a movie that either, you know, you saw in the theater, you were of a particular age or you saw this movie and it became your favorite movie at 10 that none of your other friends could watch. And it, along with other kinds of movies like it, and BJ can list off some of these other kinds of movies that we shared in common, indicated who you were at that time and who you would be for the rest of your life. My mug says (laughs) ghouls night out on it. (laughs) BJ. Hi. Who are you? Hi, I'm BJ Colangelo, and I am a 
person who got to watch literally anything I wanted as a child mm. with no boundaries. So I was watching Death Becomes Her before I hit double digits. <laughs> and I feel like that's kind of who it was made for in a way. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it feels like the core demographic for this movie weren't adults at the time. It was like kids who had no rules of their houses. <laughs> Robert Zemeckis was like, do you know who needs an introduction to hagsploitation without it being hagsploitation? Latchkey kids. <laughs> they did, though. Yeah. And I feel like this movie was also on cable a lot in the mm-hmm. 90s, which is great because you had so many chances to see part of it. Absolutely. In between Colin Mockery's Snackwell ads. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is the first time I've seen this movie in a long time, and I very much appreciated just the Zemeckis that's all over it. This is bursting with Zemeckis flavor. Down to like old age makeup that feels like it's straight out of Back to the Future. A lot of uh, animation on screen with living people that's not exactly the same as Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but like live action cartoon Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Bimbos. Bimbos. Mm-hmm. Some Uncanny Valley stuff like uh, that fucking train Christmas movie he made. Sarah Marshall. Alex Steed. What's your relationship with this movie? So when I was a child, I didn't watch Tales from the Crypt. And I have a very strong memory of being in like an antique store or something that had like a Crypt Keeper replica and simply the like ornament freaked me out so much. I remember that really well. I was so scared of the idea of Tales from the Crypt. And so what I didn't realize until many years later is that, and Alex, I feel like you can describe this better and probably you BJ as well, I bet, is that it was more like an arch kind of like black comedy Mm. show. Yeah, for sure. Totally. Mm-hmm. My friend Jeremy and I rewatched all of Tales from the Crypt or watched it all um, a couple years ago. And that's the thing I didn't realize because similarly, it's like that was on TV. I liked horror at a young age. The Crypt Keeper still undid me when I was a kid in a way that like I just I couldn't if I saw him, I'd think about him for a week and it made me very upset. So yeah. I didn't quite understand the adult humor of that show. But that show is hilarious. It's like. When it's good, it is Bruce Willis at his funniest in this movie, hilarious all the way through. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And Death Becomes Her is viewed by a lot of people as sort of an extension of Tales from the Crypt to the point where the trailer for this movie uses the Tales from the Crypt theme song that Danny Elfman wrote for the show, Mm. which is very wild because a video here in L.A. was showing Death Becomes Her. So I've seen the trailer a few times before the movies. And every time there's always somebody in the audience like, is that is that Tales from the Crypt? What is happening? <laughs> what, isn't Tales from the Crypt, wasn't it produced by, yeah, it was produced by Robert Zemeckis. It's a Zemeckis joint. So he was like, what if I did a really long one of these? Everybody forgets like what a weirdo he has the capacity for being because after <laughs> he does Death Becomes Her, he does Forrest Gump. And then that oh, changes yeah. the trajectory of his career forever. But it's like, no, no, no. Lest we forget, mm-hmm. Robert Zemeckis put a hole through Goldie Hawn. Ah, uh, and not even sexually. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe in context of everything we just said, I've been looking at Forrest Gump wrong the whole time. And it itself <laughs> is a bit of a horror comedy. <laughs> It's something. I mean, it's. I haven't watched it in a long time, but I feel like Forrest Gump has like a very stylized and cinematic way of storytelling that fits well with this. Yeah. And also Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is, what if you put these as a trio? Roger Rabbit, Madeline Ashton, and Forrest Gump, three great Americans. Yes, yes, please. Before we go further, because we will go further and deeper and holier and gooier. Mm-hmm, that's true. Sarah, do you want to push us down the stairs here? I do. Yeah. I After leaving you at a 60 degree angle for a really long time. I, that's the like that to me is where like the Roger Rabbit clicked. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, this is Roger Rabbit. But only if it's funny. <laughs> um, yeah. So the most important thing to know about Death Becomes Her, and I didn't quite answer what my relationship to this is, but I saw it for the first time on cable TV, I think, when I was 10 or 11. I remember watching it with my dad who watched a lot of stuff with me that I was too young for. I also saw Alien with him when I was like 10 years old. And I remember specifically during the scene where Sidney Pollack has a cameo, him being like, oh, Sidney Pollack. (laughs) This is a classy movie. We have three Oscar winners here. Right. So 
This is one of Meryl Streep's iconic bimbo roles. And when I was like entering my tween years and in my tween years, I guess like loved bimbos kind of the way I do now. I feel like I've returned to like a pre-adolescent to early adolescent love of bimbos that I have not allowed myself to really accept until now. And it's really exciting. So Meryl is a bimbo. We open in 1978 in New York City. She's in a musical version of Sweet Bird of Youth called Songbird, I think with an exclamation point. (laughs) And this is a movie that starts very strong. As I've said, I was thinking when I saw Barbie about how like, if you start really strong in the first three minutes, you can have your audience in your pocket for at least the next half hour. (laughs) And I feel like this is an example of this. And we see that Goldie Hawn, who is playing a dowdy New York intellectual, has taken her fiance, Bruce Willis, playing a dowdy New York doctor. Their names are Helen Sharp and Dr. Ernest Menville. And normally we don't care too much about names on the show, but like the names in this movie are great. <laughs> Madeline Ashton, Helen Sharp, Ernest Menville. And so she's taken him to see Madeline to see if he can pass the Madeline Ashton test because they've been friends since childhood and she steals all of Goldie's boyfriends. And she steals him too. And this like beautifully executed little run of scenes where we get like a lot of short little scenes in the mm-hmm. opening. And then it's just kind of one long, like a lot of just in the house for the rest of the movie, actually. It's so satisfying because it's like the beat is like they go to the show and then the beat is that they're meeting her and then they're having the fight about her stealing all the boyfriends. You're like, the next beat better be the wedding. And it is the wedding. And it's so satisfying. (laughs) And it's like this blasting organ. (laughs) And I want to add, too, to the importance of the names is that together that Mm -hmm. makes them matter than hell. Um, Which is wonderful. (laughs) And also Ernest Menville is such a great name because Ernest is the importance of being Ernest, which is an Oscar Wilde story. And Oscar Wilde did the portrait of Dorian Gray and he has to keep them all alive. Like there's so much work Mm. going on with these names. That's great news. Uh, Mm. Incredible. It's so good. It's like a little Henry James novella or something. (laughs) Right. And so Goldie Hawn comes down. She's been watching the wedding from the balcony. She's got this handkerchief that she twists in her hands and this lone dark red trickle of blood comes down which when I was that's like such a totemic image that works so well on a kid watching this kind of thing I'll tell you I really learned some storytelling from this movie (laughs) yeah that stuck with me like similarly I saw this in the theater with my mom and I had forgotten that but it was clearly in there because when she started to ring it I was like it's gonna bleed it's gonna bleed it's gonna bleed and it it did it's for why does that stick with you it's a really strong image. Yeah, it really That is. visual sticks with me in the same way that the single bloodstream of another movie I watched way too young and loved is Serial Mom when she kills oh, the yes. woman in the white shoes and you get the single <laughs> trickle of yes. blood on the white shoe. They fall under a similar umbrella in my mind, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. We weren't, God, we were really weaned on very similar media, BJ. Um. (laughs) (laughs) And reminder, I am much younger, so I have (laughs) more irresponsible parents. (laughs) In the 90s, they were adults were like, what effect will all the stylized violence and media have on children? And it's like, well, here we are. I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) Talking for money. Yeah, that's not bad. (laughs) And so we cut seven years later. Helen is living in an apartment overrun by cats. She's watching a horror movie in the middle of the day. She's eating frosting. She now has a huge, beautiful ass. What I'm saying is that she's me in this part of the movie. Do you have this many cats? I just have two, but they get all up on top of everything. So, you know. Do you also obsessively watch videos of your enemies dying on screen? (laughs) Well, I don't have any enemies who are strangled in a movie by Michael Caine, (laughs) unfortunately for me. (laughs) But I'm working on it. (laughs) I believe in you. This is like where we get our inevitable strand of classic 90s fat phobia, where it's like, oh no, Helen's fat, therefore her life is destroyed and the police are banging down the door. They're saying, hello ma'am, you're fat. We're taking you in. (laughs) 
have weird mixed feelings about this because as much as, yes, fat suits are always bad. And as much as, yes, this fat phobia is bananas. To act as if becoming a fat cat lady who eats frosting is not the actual horror of all of the very shallow people in this movie, this is their Mm -hmm. greatest fear. The problem is that society reinforces it. Right, because if you're going to do a Tales from the Crypt, which is... I would love to hear how you guys would describe like what a, a template of that actual show's episodes is like. But I my sense is that it's a lot like this and that it's like about a lot of people who are like obsessed with looks, yes. status and money and willing mm-hmm. to make Faustian bargains about any of the above. Yeah. Yep. The show is always the payoff of a Faustian bargain. Fantastic. Yes. <laughs> always. Like that's <laughs> it's a very moralistic show. It's very much the Twilight Zone, but camp. Like, that's the best way I can describe it. Like, Rod Serling was telling, like, very, like, introspective and beautiful metaphorical stories. Tales from the Crypt does the same thing, but also with a lot of rubber faces. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, once Arnold Schwarzenegger directed an episode, that's what we're doing. Uh, Yeah, so the cops come and and take Helen away. I guess for non-payment of rent, I guess she's involuntarily committed because she didn't pay rent, which kind of seems ideal, actually, because then you have a place to stay. (laughs) And then you have to go to therapy, and it's so hard to drive yourself to group therapy, honestly. So, like... We do get a snapshot of, again, one of my favorite things that ever happens in any of the movies we cover, which is the 90s imagination of therapy. Yes. And in it... The therapist yells at you and is like, we've been working for six months. It's time to get over it. (laughs) And lose weight. That's what therapy is for. You haven't lost a pound. And I do know that Zemeckis intentionally wanted these scenes to look like kind of a funhouse mirror version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mission accomplished. (laughs) Great job. Yeah, I love that. And of course, we have the... Incredibly iconic moment, I think recently quoted on one of our episodes by Evelyn Lee of uh, Helen in group therapy saying, I would like to talk about Madeline Ash. (laughs) And everyone screams. (laughs) But then her therapist is yelling at her and she's like, you have got to erase Madeline Ashton from your mind. And Helen is like, yes, erase. Yes, erase. Good. And then we cut to seven years later again. And something I love about this movie is how often it like zooms out from a mirror gradually as a mm. scene unfolds and how many wonners are in this movie. I don't know what a wonner is. But, oh, just like a one take. I can't believe I said wonner. I'm sorry. I mean, that is the <laughs> correct term if you're like a cool industry cinephile. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, so I'm glad this one explained it. (laughs) I'm just a hick from Portland, Oregon. I don't mean to put on airs. (laughs) A very long one take in which the people and the camera move, but it does not cut. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. And a lot of this movie is conducted in single takes, Um, you know, more than you usually get and not in kind of a particularly show-offy way, but kind of zooming out of mirrors and this kind of it's just like a nice way to be like the theme is artifice (laughs) right well and it does the other thing that i like that it does by way of it is a movie it is like does a lot of movie things my favorite thing about the movie is that it's like a movie movie. we get so much of that and the other thing i really enjoy about that is the like stuff is happening in the foreground while a plot twist is emerging in the background Mm -hmm. and that happens like three or four times and i love that shit (laughs) I think that's very cartoony. Like, as you were saying before, that this feels very Roger Rabbity to you. Yes, it is. That's exactly right. The camera does that as well, because when we get our big dramatic shots of Ernest realizing, like, you're alive when you should be dead, the camera is super low and looking up, like, the way that you would look at a horror movie from the 1930s. It is so wonderful how the camera itself becomes a cartoonish character in the lens that you see everything playing out. Oh, the best. Yeah. It's like it's a great example of like kind of what you can do through style and execution that is kind of as we've been talking about told in a story that's accessible and enjoyable for kids. <laughs> and speaking of that, so yeah, another 7 years later we see the Menvilles. They're living in a cartoonish mansion that's very big and tall and has giant stairs and is full of hard marble surfaces. I'm sure it'll be fine. (laughs) And our beleaguered maid is coming upstairs with a wicker tray 
and she brings up Madeline's breakfast and they have this little routine that I remember so well watching when I was like 10 or 11 where she's like Rose aren't you forgetting something and she's like I thought I only had to say it on Fridays and she's like I think you should start saying it every day and what does Rose have to say you look younger every day (laughs) (laughs) yeah and she's like pleased with that but we can see that she's sleeping with like you know this actually feels like very connected to today's moment to me honestly because I feel like in 1992 her sleeping kind of upright on all these pillows with like a strap around her chin and head that makes her look like the ghost of Jacob Marley (laughs) and like all these little patches on her face and kind of appliances that like I think that was considered kind of over the top and extreme at the time and like it doesn't feel that way anymore I think people just do that now yeah this is like all of these things that she is doing are absolutely things that are presented on TikTok by influencers and it's just like the minimum routine of things that you have to do. Yeah. If they remade it today, she would be wearing that like mask that looks kind of like a hockey mask, but it has yes. red light behind yes. it. That's yes. what would be going on. <laughs> I would need to see a slasher movie where there's a killer with like just a bunch of like beauty products on. <laughs> <laughs> All of just like the gold under eye and you put them on yeah. your lips and your forehead. The self care killer (laughs) so so we establish Madeline and Ernest and surprise the marriage has not been going well because when you steal your friend's boyfriend mostly because of your relationship with the friend although he is a plastic surgeon so that's useful to her but the marriage is not going well Uh, he has fallen asleep on the floor of his study slash fishing and hunting fandom room, I guess. (laughs) And so things are going badly. Madeline is an unhappy ball buster. They have a little bit of Al and Peg Bundy energy, I would say, actually. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he, once a respected plastic surgeon, now, I guess because he drinks so much, just has the shakes all the time. And so he can't operate on a living patient. But he is a brilliant mortician, to the stars, which watching it today and like having a close friend who's in the mortuary arts and not wanting to see her slandered, I must point out that if your hands shake when you're doing surgery, they would probably also shake when you were doing makeup on a corpse. Mm-hmm. But it's okay because his whole secret is spray paint. <laughs> yes. So everybody's unhappy. It's been seven years, two times. So it's 1992. That's math for you, everybody. And then seven years, two times after that is 2006 and then 2020. So, you know, just whatever, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And so Ernest is being called to see an emergency patient who is like, when I was a kid, I thought this was a soap star, but I feel like I might have made that up. Fernando Rivas, the actor, he died in the hot tub with his 18-year-old wife or fiance, and they're like, she's Cuban. <laughs> so you can imagine. Yeah, they really put an emphasis on her being Cuban. And I was like, huh, I wonder if that pays off. Nah, yeah. nope, it doesn't. No, we're just going to exoticize someone and call it a day. <laughs> yeah. And so Ernest has to, like, fix the corpse so he looks less orgasmic, basically. This was the first, I mean, outside of her, outside of Goldie Hawn and the fat suit and sort of the acting in the camp, the corpse that we see here was like an extremely Tales from the Crypt situation. Oh, yeah. Mm. I think the thing that it does really well and it will happen throughout the rest of the movie is it has all of these things that are essentially sight gags, but they're also committed to horror imagery. Mm-hmm. He looks like a spirit Halloween animatronic that has been turned <laughs> off. Like that's what he looks yes. like. Yes. Wow, he does. I love I love that's that's the tone that we have for the rest of this movie. Yeah, and this whole thing is like over the top and stagey and campy and as I mean, well, what do you think Siskel and Ebert gave this movie? Two, Two thumbs, thumbs down. down. Yeah. As much as I love our boys, I do not think that they were ever really great appreciators or understanders of the art of camp. No. Absolutely not. I don't know which one of them said it, but I do know that one of them critiqued the story and thinking that it's not saying anything important. And I was like, well, you do not live with the societal beauty pressures that women do. No fucking wonder. <laughs> yeah. Come on. 
they were occasionally very obtuse in very specific ways. But that one to me is kind of surprising because the thing that I picked up in a big way in watching this again was I knew there was like commentary in this, obviously. Like I knew that this was commentary about sort of like the pressures of aging, the pressures of vanity, all that. But I was taken by how smart it is. It's like mm -hmm. consistently from start to finish very smart about not just that, but about like entertainment, about like what people expect within entertainment. And now that we all in one way or another are people who present to an audience, this is like even more broadly resonant than it was in 1992. Yeah. And well, and the whole like Siskel and Ebert critique, I know they also in a general way were like, it's not serious. It's not about anything really it doesn't have like a message or whatever and it's like it, it's not schindler's list it's an allegory of contemporary mores told in a phantasmagoric cartoonish fashion i don't know i think that's worth doing yeah for sure so madeline is going to her very fancy sort of beauty spa light surgery witchcraft clinic in beverly hills or whatever where she tries to strong arm her beautician, who is a nice Midwestern girl pretending to be Franch, into giving <laughs> her another like plasma something, some kind of something, plasma separation. Something you're only supposed to have once every six months and she just had it a week and a half ago. Yeah. And then Mr. Chagall, the guy who runs the whole thing, comes down and is like, that will be enough, Anna. And he and his wicked eye twitch tell Meryl Streep about this very selective person who can help her if money is no object named Liesl von Ruman. And Meryl Streep is like, whatever, and tears up the business card and puts it in her bag. But then it's time to go to Helen's book release party. And Helen's hot. Oh, no, she's Goldie Hawn. And she's lost weight. So that's the worst thing she could have done to Meryl Streep. And she's got a red dress. And I always love when I watch these movies, like we act like the art of attraction is really complicated. But in movies from the 90s, it's clear that if you just put on like a strappy red dress, everyone loses their mind. <laughs> Robert Zemeckis really said, how about real life Jessica Rabbit? Oh my God, he did. <laughs> yeah. That is her. Definitely. Yeah. And they're at her book release party and... um. BJ, I would love for you to do some summarizing. May I sublet some summary to you? Oh, of course. I would be glad to. Mm. So yeah, they go to this book release party and they have the most awkward hug in the entire world. And what I love is that Meryl is also at this point wearing prosthetics because she has aged because they really want this juxtaposition to be present of look at this old hag and look at this... <laughs> absolute knockout even though it's still Meryl Streep and she looks beautiful no matter what mm -hmm. and she is just devastated because Madeline Ashton always wins and suddenly she is losing for the very first time because ah, how can you compete with Helen Sharp in all of her glory <laughs> so yeah she's got a She's got to get out of town and and cry in the rain in the car and put together the business card in a dramatic way to, to call Isabella Rossellini. After dumping out all her brushes. Mm -hmm. This is my introduction to Isabella Rossellini and it mm. uh, remixed my entire existence. <laughs> yes. We are creatures of the spring. She is so unbelievably hot in this movie. It's crazy yeah <laughs> again the, the rules of attraction don't have to be complicated yeah there are fundamental truths in this world and one of them is that isabella rosalini and death becomes her is one of the hottest people to ever exist on film definitely yeah she's got like kind of really a louise brooks look happening and she like is always almost naked Yes. Or I guess sometimes she's naked, which is great, too. She's essentially wearing necklaces and a loincloth, like end of outfit. She has 20s flapper hair, which makes sense because she might be from the 20s. She's 71 years old, which means she's born in 1921. Yeah, her being a super hot 71 year old is great. And all of this, I mean, it's just speaking to all of this being, you know, timeless, because this is what sort of all, all literature is in one way or another. Is someone's afraid of dying in their mortality and they do weird things as a result. There's this guy that you, I mean, I, Sarah, I don't know how connected you are with um, just how terrible the world is uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Hmm. 
I mean, I feel like I kind of take it on faith at this point. <laughs> There's a guy named Brian Johnson that gets a lot of attention right now who's affluent. I don't know if he's in the big millions or 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 billions. And he's paying a great deal of money to stay young. And he's like in his mid 40s. He does all of these things. Oh, I just heard about this guy. Yeah. And so this is a tweet from him. Okay. Just to, and he's it, well, there's a tweet. There was a tweet yesterday about him having like dick rejuvenation surgery. Mm hmm. Death becomes dick. And by the way, all of this stuff that it's it's not funny if you consider the stakes, but it's funny that this is the type of guy that like Elon fans love, but they don't like trans people. And this guy's going through all of these things that are essentially it's all gender affirming care. It's all gender all affirming it. care. So here's a tweet. So he's retweeting somebody who had a had a list. It's like this person's list is like my dream boyfriend. And then it's like a list of things that their boyfriend would have. And all of it's reasonable. Some is wholesome. Some's a little bit of, I would say, a long shot. But uh, <laughs> he retweets with his version. And I won't even read the things that I don't understand because it doesn't matter. But mm -hmm. my dream girlfriend, perfect liver markers, BMI 19, 100% sleep score average. What? Has blood girl. What? Meaning someone that he can do blood trans, they can do blood transfusions with. I think I saw an episode of Xena about basically that. <laughs> is future literate. Like, this is like still the frontier of the extremely affluent in this country is to meet Isabella Rossellini and get their hands <laughs> on this potion. I don't know how good her sleep score is, though, because I sleep. I think she sleeps in a big bed with Tom, Dick and Harry and two Rottweilers. Hey, well, that's all you should do if you're if you've found the potion. Right. Who needs a sleep score? I did realize definitely did skip over the fact that before she meets Isabella Rossellini, uh, Madeline Ashton does visit her much younger lover mm. who she's been sleeping with, who does not want to be with her anymore because she's old. Uh, yeah. So she's been cheated on. And also Helen has taken her husband, who she hates, aside at the party and... Oh, no. So she's like really at a low point. So it's actually it's not unlike The Little Mermaid. <laughs> it's very true. So after you meet Rossellini, Rossellini convinces her, here's this magic potion. And if you look closely, there are people in this potion, which I've never fully understood how that works. Are you putting souls in there? Is it the energy of youth? Either way, there are people hmm. swimming in that. It's the blood girls. Is this Horton? Here's a who. Is that what's happening? <laughs> Maybe it's the little shriveled people who've lost their dreams that Ursula collects. Ooh. Right? They do kind of look like the souls in Hercules, too. There's oh, a yeah, lot yeah, yeah. going on here. Yes. It always reminds me of that. But she, you know, she gives her kind of like the test, the way that a drug dealer gives you some free stuff to get you hooked by making her hand very very young and so her she's got this very young hand and she's like you know what I guess I gotta do the whole thing and so she takes a shot and then you get the incredible line of now a warning of <laughs> now a warning uh, which is a line that lives into my body the same way that Sally Fields the whole time is in there um, those two are sharing the same like vortex in my body yeah but yeah she she takes it and the, the big warning is you're gonna have to fake your death because uh, you're immortal now. So that's fun. That's some nice, you know, asterisk after you've already signed the terms and uh, agreement paperwork that you didn't read. So we've got that going on and she does de-age in real time. This is part of why this movie ended up winning an Oscar because this is the first instance of CGI photorealistic flesh. Wow. Which is very cool. The butt lift I think is hilarious. The boob lift is my favorite. And I learned yeah. that it's because it is a practical effect. It was originally, they, they tried to make a bra that would do it and I guess it just wasn't working right. So instead, they had the costumer or dresser for Meryl Streep uh, hide behind her and put her hands underneath her and literally lift her boobs up because this is the person on set who is, you know, touching her all day, putting her in outfits. So, you know, this is pre-intimacy uh, coordinators, but they still did the right thing. Hooray. I love it. That's <laughs> so great. smart. So, yes, now she is young. She is hot. She is beautiful. Um, and she is told, you know, Treat your body well, um, which, you know, is just good advice for everyone. You know, we only got one body. Uh, take care of it in whatever way that works for you. But meanwhile, Helen is seducing Ernest and is convincing him to kill Madeline so that they can be together because we are working in extremes here with the two of these women. It's not just get a divorce, it's kill her. Yeah. <laughs> because Helen is also falling into a very 
kind of 90s trap of she tells Ernest that she does not blame him because Madeline Ashton is just too powerful because she's a woman, Ernest. A woman. I love this. Yeah. Like 2023 feminism would tell us that like, "Mm, you should also be holding him accountable. We're in the 90s. We're not there yet. We are blaming women for everything. My read on it, and it could be, this could be too optimistic, is she's, she appeals to their like pretty specific biases. Like she appeals to, to, to Meryl's by being like, you know, it's not your fault. Like we're friends, whatever. Like, you know, he, he did this, he did this. And she appeals to his inherent misogyny, yep. which pairs well <laughs> later with learning that he's a Republican. Yes. I see. I agree with you completely. I love that. She basically is like, you're too stupid not to fall into this trap, which is, <laughs> that's kind of the entire undercurrent of this entire movie is that I don't think either of them ever really liked Ernest. They liked what he could mm-hmm. offer and they think he's a dumb dumb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Madeline returns home, obviously, you know, looks kind of incredible. And she gets into a big tiff with Ernest and she humiliates him for the last time because obviously Ernest knows that he has Helen to fall back on. So he's willing to finally stand up for himself. But Meryl gives my favorite line delivery of anything she's ever done in her entire career, which is flaccid, where she (laughs) shakes her tongue at him. And Bruce Willis snaps and he chokes her out and tries to push her down the stairs. But because of her magic, you know, Michael Jackson high heels she's got on where she can lean very far back and not fall. She's swinging and she yells at him and says, you know, you got to get me up. And he pushes her down the stairs and she legitimately like falls down the stairs in a way that is so scary looking. Her first hit face on the marble stair is brutal. And then she has 4,000 other stairs after that. (laughs) (laughs) So Ernest goes down the stairs and because he is a doctor, does all of the things that he should do of checking to see if she is alive and is like, no, she's very dead Um, (laughs) because she is dead. But of course, he doesn't know that she has taken magical potion that will make her immortal. So he is convinced she's dead. He freaks out and... (laughs) decides to call Helen. But when he goes to call Helen, Madeline gets up and her head's on the wrong way. And it is so silly and cartoony and absolutely incredible because she can look at her own ass. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we, we have so much fun, goofy body horror with Madeline and, you know, finally gets her head back in the correct direction. And for whatever reason, the logical decision is let's go to the doctor and not let's never tell anyone about this ever. So they go to the doctor and uh, she gets examined and there's the great, again, body horror of her wrist going back way farther than it should. And her being like, yeah, it doesn't hurt. I already told you there's nothing. No, it's fine. Her demeanor in the scene is one of my favorite things. This is so nonchalant about everything. It's great. And Sidney Pollack, is, is he's the doctor, and I love him in the scene, too, where he's like, all right, kids, well, it seems like your body temperature is in the 80s, and you have no heartbeat. And- <laughs> him and Ernest are being way more chill about this than they could be. And something I do like is that this movie never says like undead or zombie but that's a hundred percent what's happening here totally because she is dead though uh bruce willis like runs in a panic and needs a doctor because she's dead and he comes back and they've taken her to the morgue and it's very dramatic and very wonderful so yes uh goes to get her from the morgue uh brings her home and decides i'm a mortician i can take care of you i work with dead people all the time It's really perfect. It's also like in that morgue scene when he's going to find her, there's like these three nuns that float by and that's the kind of touch that like has nothing to do with the plot. But you're like, I love that that's in here. It it adds so much to the experience. I'm so sorry, but Wheezy's dreaming so loud next to me. Oh, wow. Is that what that was? Yeah. Let's keep it in. I'm so sorry, Sarah. You were making a zillion point and Wheezy just dreamed so loud. <laughs> no, let's add it. That's the levitating nun 
of our show. <laughs> we don't need it to explain the movie, but it adds to the feeling of the movie. It sure does. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously goes home with Madeline. It's a miracle because she is alive. But Madeline <laughs> is, is, you know, not dead. I mean, she's dead, but she's not dead. But Helen is over and she overhears Helen talking about how they are going to kill Madeline Ashton. <laughs> and the response is, you know, the logical conclusion, shoot her with a shotgun through the torso. Perfect. Madeline is standing her ground. She she really is. And this is when we get Goldie Hawn with the white contacts for the chunk of the movie to prove that she's dead because Madeline's eyes have been painted, even though I think he complains that his work is like not super good. But that's why her eyes look normal and Goldie mm-hmm. Hawn's look ghastly, which I quite like. Goldie Hawn is a deadite. I love that. Yeah, she does have total deadite energy in this. It's good. Oh, my God. And so shoots her in the torso. She obviously doesn't die. She stands up. The water pours out of the center of her in a way that defies logic, even if this were a real thing. But I don't care because it's fantastic. And that's when we have the understanding of you took the potion too. Oh, no. Only I was supposed to take the potion specifically to get at you because I hate you and every decision I make in my life is related to you, (laughs) which is just wonderful. But they realize at that moment, well, we are kind of stuck together, but luckily we have Ernest here and he will take care of us forever because he has to, because he loves us and because we are both dead now because you fell down the stairs and I have been shot in the stomach. And from this moment on, this is when the movie, in my opinion, just becomes an absolute carnival of just nonsense in all of the best ways possible. Mm -hmm. They decide they have to take Ernest to get the potion as well so that he can be alive as long as they are. And uh, he's not down at all because... He's too wise. He's he knows there's there's dangers of immortality. But he has this confrontation during a party where we discover that all of the people in Hollywood that have ever had conspiracy theories about them not actually being dead are not actually dead. Um, and the best part too is that when they bring Bruce Willis to Isabella Rossellini, she's willing to like everybody else has had to pay like millions of dollars, but she's like, wait, you're a plastic surgeon and mortician. You can have it for free right. because you would be beneficial. So yes, Ernest denies taking the the potion. He wants to eventually die because that's the point of life. And they have a big tussle. They end up on the roof. It's dangerous. He falls. He escapes. And Madeline and Helen realize that they are going to have to take care of each other forever, whether they want to or not. And so we flash forward 37 years, which for the record would be 2029, which is coming right up. We're at Dr. Ernest Menville's funeral, where I remember liking this ending when I was a kid because I was like really afraid of and obsessed with death from a pretty early age. And I liked anything that could make me feel like mortality was not a curse. (laughs) And this is really one of those really like Ernest Menville believed life began at 50 because he's a man and he can have kids at that age. So, you know. And he met his beautiful wife, Claire, and he had lots of children and did so much great stuff. There's also, they mention the Ernest Menville Center for the Study of Women. (laughs) The Menville Study for Women. He's the first person who deemed women worthy of study, but only under laboratory conditions, of course. And so he's had this great life. He climbed a mountain at one point. And he's like really started things over. And then we pan back to the the back row of the church and it's Madeline and Helen and they've got veils over their faces and they're they've been taking care of their own makeup needs, but they're not very good at it. And they're just their faces are just kind of dripping and they're just kind of like marionettes when they walk around because they've broken so many bones or in such <laughs> bad shape. And the movie ends with them tripping on a can of spray paint that Meryl dropped earlier and falling down the stairs where they break into pieces. And we end with this laugh line of like Goldie's severed head rolling on the pavement and then her being like, do you remember where you parked the car? (laughs) And this was a reshot ending. And I was reading today, I had never known what the original ending was, but the original was that Ernest has this kind of 
secret love who's his bartender, Tracy Ullman. And basically, they run off together. And then 27 years later, the girls are in Switzerland. And they're still looking great, but they're so bored and they're stuck with each other and they're kind of in, in a purgatory of their own making. And Helen looks out at this old creaky couple who are very much in love and it turns out to be Ernest and Tracy Ullman. And the last thing we see is his young hand because he got the free sample. Because no matter what, when you go see Liesl, you get a free sample, his young <laughs> hand clasping her old hand. Death becomes her. I like that it's that we get the young hand next to her old hand. That's a cool visual. Mm-hmm. You get the David Duchovny in Zoolander model hand that's <laughs> kept in glass. <laughs> this end, I think, is where it being thoughtful is lost on me a little bit because I think like all of the things that we get them doing, all of the zany behavior that we get them doing in the name of being youthful, sort of having vain interests, et cetera, all kind of works and makes sense in the way that like, he's a plastic surgeon. She's a movie star. Goldie Hawn is, I mean, she's a writer. I don't know. I don't know how much it makes sense there. Although we're all, you know, sort of nuts in our own ways, but that it all makes sense in the context of like, they're in industries where vanity is really important and they are obsessed with it. It makes you do wild things. The end kind of makes it suggest, right. That it's like, he started living his life at 50 when he was like kind of born anew. He found all the things that really matter in life. He did all those things. And like, look at the ghoulish alternative in the back of the church. And like them as women have different expectations put on them than Bruce Willis does. <laughs> you know what I That's mean? a really good point, Alex. <laughs> I also think like it's very interesting in that I do think that the ending is supposed to be somewhat sentimental of like, there's no, you know, time like you can start your life whenever, like don't Ooh, yeah. feel the pressure of that I think that's all good. But everything that he does is also so extreme that it goes into camp because he has all those right, kids. Thank you. But then yeah. they're also like, and he also adopted children all yeah, across yeah. the world. Yeah, and I love the line of like, not much is known about him before he <laughs> turned 50 because the internet doesn't exist yet. But he was married to an actress. People know what he was doing. What are you talking about, priest? <laughs> right? He didn't change his name. I would, but again, this is this is a podcast. I would love to hear the Menville Files. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the picture they have of Bruce Willis at the funeral from when he climbed the mountain, where he has that like horrible white mustache, so that we know that yeah. he, no matter what, he still has the mustache because that's the character trait we gave him. So he's got to have that <laughs> even when he's old. <laughs> There's just something like wonderful about having him be the person who's witnessing all of this like he's the great stand-in for us about being like like how would you respond in this situation and his just the last 45 minutes of this movie his level of heightened exasperation is highly respectable definitely i feel like this movie is i can see why it's divisive but it feels as if it has like really aged into an acknowledged classic i would wonder about who would debate that and what I suspect is that people who kind of grew up on it have have played a really big part in that I think it's a combination of both the people who grow up on it so therefore we have you know that built-in affinity for it but this is another movie that has really been kept alive by queer people mm. like this is <laughs> such a seminal work for a lot of queer people and when it had its anniversary last year yeah last year there were so many retrospectives about it and they were overwhelmingly from the lens of gay men and drag queens and queer people who were like we understand this movie on a very deep level and we're finally getting to a point I think culturally where queerness is folding into the general monoculture so people are able to pick up on these camp elements which that's why people are really pumped about a movie like Barbie which has so many mm-hmm. camp elements in it um, whereas I would think 10 years ago it would have been lost on a lot of people mm-hmm. so that's really interesting because this movie is also playing into a lot of genres that outside of just the campy nature of it gothic horror is very big with queer people because we're made to be monsters so these are people embracing mm-hmm. the monstrous and you know like i said earlier it, this is a hagsploitation movie about people who are fighting 
every chance they can to not become hags. This is whatever <laughs> happened to baby Jane fighting to become Joan Crawford and Betty Davis because they don't want to end up that way. They would like to stay Joan Crawford and Betty Davis in their prime. That's what this movie is. And those are, you know, subgenres of, of horror that queer people resonate with and love and embrace and enjoy on a level that the general culture just doesn't. So I think Death Becomes Her is incredibly ahead of its time. And it's also very fun that it comes from Zemeckis, who is not a gay guy, <laughs> um, but he just gets it. He's just down and he gets it. Yeah. That's so great. It feels like the kind of thing that would have been possibly made by Joel Schumacher. Totally. Yeah, for sure. I mean, do you think outside of the camp elements where, where it's rich, and, and I think that that's what spoke to me when... I was a kid because I wasn't necessarily picking up like anything by way of what the text or subtext might be suggesting. But do you think that there's anything about the subtext or the journey that speaks to queerness in a way that, you know, movies that were being made for kids weren't speaking to? There was a wonderful interview that Peaches Christ, the drag queen, did with I think the AV Club when this came out where she was talking about how so many queer people like this because there is an issue of vanity in a lot of queer circles of everybody, you know, it, you, like they, they have names for it. Like there's like circuit queens, like people who are these just unrealistically ripped men that are trying to be with other unrealistically ripped men. There's, you know, the terrible offensive culture of, you know, no fatties, no femmes, no blacks, no Asians, where everybody mm. wants a very specific type of, you know, white supremacist, you know, body culture. And this movie feeds into those anxieties of wealthy, privileged, attractive white people losing the aspects of their identity that give them a little bit of power and a little bit of privilege over the rest of the world when they are otherwise marginalized and like these are these are women and you know mm. they're beautiful and they're rich but the second you turn into an old hag or a crone all of the privileges that you have start to go the wayside you get less of it and it's doubly infuriating when men are able to age and maintain positions of power and are still taken seriously. They become seasoned. They become veterans. We become crones. Mm. So I think that also speaks to it as well. Mm -hmm. I just, I've always loved this movie because it allows me to look at insecurities that I have in my own life and my own like internalized feelings of misogyny about myself because like I'm a, like I'm a fat person. So like I will never look like this. And it weirdly feels nice to see those insecurities validated through two of the most beautiful mm. women to have ever lived. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like we spend, you know, with culture is kind of more diverse and therefore able to be more thoughtful about it. But it is nice when you spend so much time in like inner beauty, embracing aging, whatever, like all this wholesome stuff that is really good for us and that we need to use to deprogram. But also it's just nice to have moments where it's like, to quote Meryl Streep in this movie, but why does it have to happen to me? Right. <laughs> right. You make such a great point, like, you know, being well-rounded and sort of like what your aspiration or ideals are or like, or utilizing some mindfulness or all the things that you need to do to accept that these things are going to happen. Like, that's great. And it's important. And those are the lessons. But still, I think almost every human is shocked that some decline happens to them, even though you know it's coming. <laughs> it's shocking. And then you have to pay a social price for it. Yes. And also an actual price, you know, in various ways. And I feel like this movie works partly because it articulates really well through Liesel what that feels like, which is that you kind of get to know your body in a certain way. And then, you know, and often this happens well before aging. There's so many ways that your body can become your enemy starting even before birth but this mm -hmm. is this is just another of them oh definitely and on like a weird level this movie has always spoken to me because in addition to all of my other ailments i'm also 
a cancer survivor and I had pancreatic cancer, which meant I had very serious like gastrointestinal surgery where they had to cut my body open. And mm. so now I get to say both there's a hole in my stomach as well as my favorite <laughs> drop dead gorgeous quote of they remade my belly with skin from my butt, which is <laughs> just a delight. But it's totally that where you think that you know what's going on with your body and you feel very comfortable with it. And no matter how much internal work you do to feel good about yourself, you still have to operate and walk through a world that has not always done that work with you. Mm. I never feel bad about myself or my body or my scar until someone else reminds me that I'm supposed to feel bad about it. And mm -hmm. this movie does a lot of that because you see them feeling very good and then they will pick at each other. And then suddenly it doesn't matter how good they feel about themselves because one of them has invalidated the other and now they're internalizing it. Mm -hmm. So watching that is just really, I don't know, it's just like it's very affirming, especially in, like you were saying, Sarah, like our culture of like unlearning all of these issues where it's like, yeah, we can all do that, but that doesn't mean society has also unlearned them. And it's really nice for people to not, to, to be realistic about how, fucked up things are sometimes because it just is and sometimes it's nice when somebody says like I feel shitty and the world makes me feel shitty not to be like oh but like it doesn't matter right, right, you'll right, feel right, fine because right. it yeah. does matter and I right. wish it didn't but it does yeah Alex like what resonated with you about this movie as a kid I mean I think what it was was camp Obviously, I didn't have a language for that. I didn't even know that postmodernity or, you know, aesthetic language existed yet. But just the camp of it being a human cartoon was huge for me. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I also love that this movie is talking about, you know, pretty heavy and serious subjects. You're dealing with mortality. You're dealing with aging. You're dealing with societal pressures. You're dealing with all of these very, like, this could be an after school special kind of topic, but because of that camp and because of the absurdity of the effects, you're able to navigate all of them from a safe distance that it like it never feels like it gets too real to where suddenly you're like, well, I'm going to have to unpack this in therapy next week. No, what you're saying is it's not what Siskel and Ebert wanted it to be. Yeah, it's not that movie. And I'm so thankful it's not because if it was, it would be awful. It would be a terrible, terrible time. Absolutely. No, I think it's, it's a real great illustration of you know the importance of when you're talking about issues capital i issues that sometimes issues issues sometimes uh uh some campy slapstick is the way to go yeah i mean it's a movie about two bitches and that's so great <laughs> it's also interesting that the ending they reshot was one that like kind of ended on a laugh line and wasn't sort of wistful and thoughtful but that it also gave them punishment, right? That they were like allowed to just keep looking cute forever in the original ending. And I think that probably in changing it, there was some calculation made of like, you know, this is the country of the production code still <laughs> being emotionally true, if not literally true for a lot of audiences. And like, we have to punish villains in some, even if it's an over the top way, it has to happen. Yeah, I know that this went through many scripts. I know that there were scenes that were deleted. I know that they did audience testing, which I hate audience testing mm -hmm. because it's an incredibly imperfect and corrupt system that I could go on like 75 soapboxes about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it does feel like they're punishing them in having them look this way, which is essentially just liquid latex pulled off of their face and then makeup <laughs> drawn on top of it because that's how we're supposed to view them. And it's so interesting that the finger is pointed at the two of them and not the fact that our world is what manufactures people to act this way. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That was the thing that to me was missing is I was like, uh, they're acting like this for a reason. <laughs> Right. The fact that this opens with Meryl Streep looking so unbelievably beautiful and singing and dancing and having this great number and people going, Madeline Ashton, way to resurrect her from the dead. She's 43. <laughs> right. Actually, she's 36 because this is. Yeah. So. Ugh. Oh, you're right. Yeah. She's supposed to be 36, but Meryl's 43. But still, it's like, yeah. what are you talking about? Of course, that's going to make your brain do some weird things and internalize it in weird ways and lash out. Are you kidding me? 
<laughs> yeah. I also love how much of this movie they rely on lighting her from different angles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my God. The lighting on Goldie's face, I mm-hmm. caught in a big, big way. Is they put like a 7 billion watt spotlight on Goldie's face a number of times to the point where like her face is lit and her body looks like it's like 25 feet in the distance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess like the use of lights on Meryl Streep's face to make her look younger or older, like it's very simple little tricks some of the time and it also reminds you that like people look different like in different conditions and at different times of the day you know yes absolutely right now I mean if this is an audio medium but I don't have my eyebrows on which means I look like my dad because my (laughs) face gets more sunken in I have no concealer on so it's like oof you definitely are Italian with the bags under your eyes I look like an Italian dad from the Midwest, I look like Joe Pesci in Home Alone. I've accepted this about my face, but you give me an hour and I draw my eyebrows on and then suddenly I look like a vampire and it's awesome. But isn't it wrong to deceive men? Thankfully, I'm gay and I don't have to worry about it. And then once a man realizes he's been deceived, isn't it acceptable that he was violent about it? Oh, of course. It's my fault. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Look, well, men get to kill women kind of whenever they get frustrated over not opening a chip bag, really, in this country. After you talk about his floppy dick, isn't it fine that he nudged you down the stairs? You know, that's what I get for saying flaccid so dramatically. Flaccid. (laughs) yeah i guess love i don't know that everyone is just like dialed up to like a as we've been saying a really cartoonish level it's just fun to watch it's just fun a movie can be fun roger and it should be when it can be could you remind me when we were talking about this about the movies that we watched what were the movies we were talking about that were like big for you when this first came out Oh, Death Becomes Her, Serial Mom, and Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead were like a trifecta for me as a kid. Same, same Mm -hmm. movies. And they all kind of have the same vibe in very, very different directions. Like, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead is about literally a dead baby (laughs) (laughs) for kids. Well, you know, she wasn't very nice. I think the thing they all have in common is like there is a pitch black sense of humor to everything. There is a very frank approach to mortality. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's fabulous costumes and there's mean women. Like those are my favorite things. (laughs) Yeah. Fabulous costumes and mean women. That's really all I want. Mm -hmm. That's a fucking Waylon Jennings song. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, we know that Bruce Willis's character eventually becomes a father to many children across the world. Possibly too many. Probably too many, for sure. Who, in your view, is the daddy of Death Becomes Her? BJ, do you want to kick us off? The daddy of Death Becomes Her is Isabella Rossellini. She has commanding daddy energy. She also has weekend figure your own shit out I'm busy daddy energy which I love Mm -hmm. but at the same time everybody wants to appease her which if that's not most people's relationship with their dads I don't know what is wow yeah I feel like she's the daddiest character we've ever had in the whole show oh wow (laughs) yeah She's right up there. She's certainly on a poster for dadhood in this situation. I will uh, just, you know, just to make sure we have a well-rounded daddy wheel in this situation. I'm going to say Sidney Pollack, not for any good reason outside of the fact that he realizes that she's dead and has no insights or offers on what to do, (laughs) is very perplexed about what to do next, (laughs) takes a drink. Yeah, he's a specific kind of daddy that we all, if we had them, we're happy that uh, we don't have to see them as often. (laughs) That is a quadrant of the daddy wheel. (laughs) Sarah, who's your dad? I'm going to say Goldie Hawn because she was like one of my first bimbos when I think Mm. about it that I was exposed to kind of as a performer and, and in the roles she played. And especially her in Overboard, which I watched many times when I was growing up. Like I loved when I was a kid, any media about a woman who simply was too fancy for her own good (laughs) because I felt fancy on the inside. If I could be wearing something drapey that looked like it was made out of gold, then like obviously that was going to be my choice. And I love that she has been playing iconic bimbos for like 55 years (laughs) at this point. She's like the Dame Judi Dench of bimbos. I love it. BJ. 
How can people find you? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Blue Sky, at BJ Colangelo. And my podcast, This Ends at Prom, is anywhere you get your podcasts. And our podcasts all just entered where I exited the Terrible Twos together. Yes. We are three years old. We are worshipped at Westerberg and we're only juniors. Mm. Yeah, for people for people who don't know who aren't uh, following our every statement on various social media platforms, we all, our shows celebrated our third birthday slash anniversary in the same week. We, we launched within two days of each other. Yes, we did. We're twins. Which is nice because that means our podcast dads have the same birthday as us and just don't <laughs> think about it. It's fine. We're the same age. It's fine. <laughs> it all works. Don't worry about it. Uh, BJ, thanks for for doing this with us. It was super fun. Thanks for having me. Any excuse I can to talk about Battle in Ashton, I'm gonna do it. Oh my god, yeah. Beautiful. You deserve it. All right, everybody. That is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you so much to BJ for joining us. Thank you to Carolyn for producing and editing the episode. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make our episodes sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thank you for following us on Instagram and uh, what was known as Twitter one time. And thank you for finding us on Blue Sky. Who knows where we'll be next? You can support our show over on Patreon and with Apple Podcast subscriptions. Thank you so much for supporting the show generally. It gets the whole thing made. And again you get bonus episodes for doing that and we appreciate that you do that thank you so much uh i think that is it for this week's episode of you are good a feelings podcast about movies thank you so much for being here we appreciate you and don't forget that you my friend are good